Tonight, we get to light the Advent candle of love, and there's a real subtlety in our approach to Christmas that, that I really uh, appreciate about Advent. Each week, the light gets brighter. Each week as we light a new candle, it gets a little bit brighter as we approach uh, the day that we celebrate the birth and the arrival of Jesus. And that is a metaphor that's rich, and it's also really descriptive of what our life experiences as we draw near to Jesus. We experience greater light in our, in our own lives. As we think about that tonight, as we prepare to settle into that, I want to give you a heads up on what we're going to experience next weekend. Uh, next weekend, all of our worship services, we have three services over the weekend, all the worship expression, the, the, the music, the style will be the same in all three services. Sometimes when people know that, they like to adjust which service uh, that they come to. I don't want anybody to read anything into that. That's not an indication of uh, changes that are coming. Uh, but there are times throughout our calendar year uh, that we choose on purpose to make sure that all of, our, all of our services, we're all singing and celebrating in the same way next weekend. And our Christmas Eve services are just one of those times uh, during the calendar year that we do that. And I I really look forward uh, to sharing those services with you. Now, as we're talking about Advent, I want to do a quick recap. Uh, Advent is about arrival. Advent is about remembering that the King has come when Jesus is born, and we live on the in-between of two arrivals. We remember that Jesus came, but we also look forward to his return. And with that in mind, what we're doing this Advent season, we are uh, reading and really settling into key passages in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, biblical, I don't know if you know this or not, but there are some biblical scholars that they have nicknamed the Old Testament book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. And the reason it's called the fifth gospel is because it is just full of good news. And this Old Testament book of Isaiah is quoted, depending on how you count, somewhere between 80 and 90 times uh, throughout the New Testament. And so things that we're talking about tonight, um, it's not new. The things that we're, that we're circling up around and really focusing in on uh, together uh, tonight, these are things that have been remembered for over and over again for generations. I don't know if you guys know this, there are no new developments in the Christmas story. I don't have new details to give you. All right, Advent is good news, but it's also old news. And yet, and yet there may be moments, I don't know, but there might be a moment tonight and, and, and the sermon, there might be a moment or two where it feels kind of like this, right? I kind of hope that it would feel like this. I would imagine this guy right here knew that a wave was coming. He just wasn't expecting to get hit like this. Tonight, as we really look in to this passage that was read for us earlier, there is a tremendous weight of history. There's a tremendous weight of revelation that is behind it, behind it, ready to come crashing in. And if we really dare to study it, if we open ourselves up to it honestly, there may be a moment or two where it feels like what comes rolling in and churning around us and washing over us is something that we weren't quite prepared for. Now, if that happens, that's okay. I think that's a good thing because this is what tonight is about. This is what this moment is about. It's a moment to allow ourselves to feel awe for the deep and amazing love that God has for you. And so let's look again at that passage that was just read for us. Isaiah 54, we're going to look at verses 4 through 5 and verse 10. It says, Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. 
For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Now, as we read through those verses together just now, I highlighted a number of words. I'm going to put them back on the screen. I'm curious, which list of words, which side of the list do you gravitate towards to most? Kind of the negative words or the positive words? And if you gravitate towards the positive words, that's great. That's a wonderful, that's a great feature about you. I, I love that about you. But I think I owe it to you. I think I owe it to us to at least acknowledge a, a vulnerability that some of us might carry with us right now. And this is what I mean. The vulnerability that I'm talking about is there is a vulnerability for some of us, maybe a lot of us, maybe a few of us, but for some of us, to reduce Christmas or the season of Advent to simply being about light. That's not Advent. To be clear, Advent is about light shining in the darkness. And so each week, this is our drumbeat. Remember, receive, and reflect the light. This only makes sense if we are in a kind of very real darkness. This is only urgent if we are in a kind of very real darkness. And as I say, in the darkness, what is it that you think? What comes to mind? How are you explaining that? How are you unpacking that word in your own mind as you think about it? For those of us in the room who we've spent lots of time in church or lots of time reading the Bible, you're probably thinking, I know this one, call on me, I know the answer. The answer is sin, right? And you're right, that is accurate, that's absolutely true. But here's the thing, sometimes, maybe not for you, but sometimes, the word sin can be like a clinical term. It can feel distant and abstract and impersonal. I'm going to tell you what I think. I can't prove it. I'm going to just tell you what I think. I think this is the reason. I think this is the reason that God predominantly communicates truth to us through story. That God predominantly communicates truth to us through story and through sticky metaphor and sticky imagery. Because just saying true statements and just saying propositions, they're easy to ignore. But there's something about story and there's something about powerful imagery that sneaks around our defenses and really gets to the core of who we are. And so tonight, I want to ask, do you know the story? Do you know the imagery that is used to describe the darkness in Isaiah 54 into which light has come? And to help us understand, to help us step into it and really get it, I want to tell you a story, but it's not a pleasant story. It was some years ago that a woman came to see me in my office, and her coming to visit me uh, and for hoping that I would pray with her, which I was happy to do, was really a last-ditch effort. It was like a Hail Mary attempt um, to escape some hurt and despair that she was carrying in her life. She was in her mid to late 40s, and as uh, can be true for anybody, marriage didn't quite pan out for her, and she was okay with that. What she was not okay with was not being a mom. And the day that she came to see me was 
the day before her final IVF treatment. She had spent a small fortune. All the attempts had failed. She was at the end of her money. She was at the end of her medical options. She was at the end of herself. And she just wept in my office. And I'll never forget the sound of her voice when she said to me, if I can't be a mom, I don't want to live. Believe it or not, this is the context. This is the imagery in Isaiah 54. Collectively, the people of Israel were being described as like a woman who was barren and unable to have children. And the reason they were described that way was because of their sin and their rebellion against God and their ongoing resistance of him. And as the weight of that imagery presses in on us, let me just say we're only halfway to the bottom. The woman who sat in my office that day, she was carrying a kind of pain, let me just be honest, I am not qualified to talk about. But what I can tell you is that in the day of Isaiah and this time in biblical history, there were features of that culture that would have taken that kind of pain and hurt and amplified it and only made it worse. In the day of Isaiah, at that time in biblical history, uh, the people of Israel operated in an honor-shame culture. And it's not necessarily what God designed for them, but that is how their culture formed. And in an honor-shame culture, someone's identity is really defined by their family and by their larger community. Now, that's hard for us to relate to because in the modern Western world, we're hyper-individualized. And our approach to identity really is about the individual. Believe it or not, that's a relatively recent development in human history. But in an honor-shame culture, not only is your identity defined by your family and by your broader community, your sense of value and worth is defined by the value that you can bring to your family and to your larger community. And for a woman, in that day, in that culture, that meant your ability to have children. So a woman who was unable to have children not only experienced the kinds of things that a, a woman who wants to be a mom would experience, the hurt that comes along with that, but from her family and from her community, she would experience shame and scorn and reproach. And the kinds of things that were not only just socially acceptable, but recommended to do in that kind of situation is divorce that woman or simply replace her with a second wife. Now, guys, this is probably hard for us to relate to. And so let me see if I can create an on-ramp for us men in the room to understand what's going on. Men, imagine that all the people who we esteem the most, the people that we look up to and admire the most, they say to you, or they say to me, you bring no value to us, you're a waste of space. That ugliness is the metaphor that is used intentionally in Isaiah 54 to describe what the state of sin is and rebellion against God. Now, this is where I'm going to ask you to lean in with me. Now, this is where I'm going to ask us all to be the best listeners that we know how to be. The Bible is not trying to say, by using this imagery, that people who want to get pregnant but are unable to, that it's because of their sin and there's something wrong with them. That's not the message. This is the message. 
to see the true state of our sin, to see the true state of the darkness in which we live, when we look to that kind of hurt, we began to see it with greater clarity. And why would, why would God want to use that kind of imagery, that powerful metaphor? Because it represents the loss of identity. It represents the loss of value and the loss of security. And I think this is why. I think this is why Jesus one time said to the people who were around him, he said, guys, listen, you can read about this in John 10. Jesus said, the thief, which is Satan, he only comes to kill, to steal from you, to destroy your life. And Jesus said, but I've come. I have come to bring you the fullest, the best life possible. And so into this state that is so dreadfully dark, there is a light that is so incredibly good that as we read Isaiah, it says to us that the appropriate response from our state of darkness, and we see this light that has come, the appropriate response is to sing and to rejoice and to celebrate. And I want you to see the first sentence of Isaiah 54. This is how it begins. Sing, barren woman, who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. This is prophetic literature, and whenever we read prophetic literature, there's an immediate context, and there's an ultimate context. The immediate context is this. When Isaiah is writing this prophecy, this word that he receives from God to the people of Israel, the nation had been broken in half through civil war. They had lost a war to Babylon, the capital city of Jerusalem is largely empty, not completely empty, but largely empty, and it sits in ruin. And the majority of the citizens of Jerusalem have been carried off into Babylon in exile. And what God is saying, into this dreadful darkness, a light has come. I am bringing the people back. I am bringing life back. I am bringing prosperity and flourishing back so you can rejoice. Now, that's the immediate context. What's the ultimate context? The ultimate context is there is a darkness of sin that is universal in human experience that we all sit in. What has your experience been with sin? Even if you were to disagree with me on what is sin and what isn't a sin, how have you experienced moral regret wreak havoc in your own life? Even if we look beyond our own life and we look beyond our own communities and we look around the world and we get really honest about what's going on in the world, into this state of darkness, light has come. Isaiah 54.10 says this, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. What does unfailing love mean? This is an easy one. It means it doesn't fail. It means there is no best use by date. There is no expiration date on the love of God. For those of you who have kids, it means you can't break it. It's unbreakable. Nobody can tarnish it. There is nothing you can do to bend, to break, to dent, or diminish the love that God has for you. Unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord who has, what's this word? Compassion. Now there is a word. There's a word in this verse that I think is easy to skip by, and it's this one right here. Will you say it out loud with me? Covenant. 
Oh, you guys, that was weak. That was weak. But here we go. I have hopefully unfailing love for you. Let's say this word together. One, two, three. Covenant. There we go. This word is super important. This word is incredibly important. And I don't know if you know this. Some of you guys probably do because you're smart. But this verse right here, and really all of Isaiah 54, is recalling back, is quoting, is pointing back to what might be the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. I'm curious, are you familiar with this passage? Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 says this. This is describing God, and God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. We're going to talk about this a little bit, but let me point back to this verse. This is, this is the verse that's being quoted and referenced in Isaiah 54. God is proclaiming that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and full of love and faithfulness. I'm going to hit you with some facts about Exodus 34 tonight. Number one, here's the first fact. Did you know that this is the most quoted verse by all biblical writers? This is the verse that is quoted and repeated more throughout all the Bible than any other verse. Did you know that? Here's another fact about Exodus 34.6. This is the first time in the Bible where God describes himself to people. Did you know that? This is the first time ever in the Bible that God describes himself. And the question is, what's the context? What's the reason why? Why would God describe himself? What's the backstory? Real quickly, let me give you the backstory. His people, the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. And through a series of stunning miracles, God displayed his power and his provision for the people. And he brings them out of Egypt, and they're now free, and they are wandering in the wilderness, making their way to the promised land. But you guys know how people are, right? Even when things are going good, people will still complain. Have you guys met people? And so one night, they're in the wilderness. And they're having their latest griping session, and they decided, we're sick of this, and, and they, they made an idol, and they're going to celebrate this idol, and they threw this wild party that would make a frat boy blush. And when Moses found out, it broke his heart. It just broke his heart, and he was mad. When God saw it, he responded with a real just anger that he expressed in conversation to Moses. As a matter of fact, immediately after this, God and Moses have this long back and forth conversation. And in the middle of this conversation, God says to Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness. And by his goodness, he means who he is, what he's really like. And Exodus 34, 6 is God showing his goodness to Moses. And the very first thing that God says is this. I am, what's this word? When people were grotesquely sinful and rebellious and scandalous and how they were just ungrateful and rejecting God, God says, this is the first thing you got to know about me. Listen, get out a chisel. Don't write it down. Carve it in stone. This is the first thing you got to know about me. I am compassionate. Now, this is an emotional word. This is really a word that's all about emotion. And uh, this was originally written in Hebrew. And so we're going to do a little something called Hebrew 101. I want, I want you to hear what this word uh, sounds like. This word in Hebrew, it sounds like this, rahum. All right? Rahum. And it means compassion. 
And to understand this word, really to understand any word, you have to know what its root is, its etymological root. What is it, what is it based in? And this word right here, compassion, is based on this word right here. Rechum comes from rechum. I feel like I'm a Klingon when I try to pronounce Hebrew. Any guesses what this word is? Womb. From the core of his being, God is compassionate for you. Is it any surprise? Is it any surprise, knowing this, that God chooses to describe what the state of sin is like as a woman who is unable to have children? This is what sin does. It cuts us off from the one who loves us and who made us in his image. Crack open your Bible to the very first page, and this is what you will read. That God made humanity in his image, male and female. He created them. That means every man and woman in this room, you carry what's called the Imago Dei. You have the image of God on you. You were made to reflect what he is like. Men and women do this equally, though sometimes differently. As you read the Bible, God is always referred to with masculine pronouns. I think that's meaningful. But the very first time that God wanted to describe to people what he is like, he described himself in a way that is like woman. I think that's meaningful too. And as strange as it might be to say out loud, God is womb-like. 80% of the time, 8 out of 10 times that this word is used in the Bible, it's used to describe God. I don't want to give you just two of those examples. Psalm 103.13 says this, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And Isaiah 49, it says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born, though she may forget? He said, listen, could you imagine a nursing mom forgetting her kid? As crazy as that sounds, it's crazier still to think that I would ever forget you. What's the point of this? The point is this, that God is always leaning towards you. In the same way that a loving father is instant in his response to his kids when they have a need. In the same way that a nursing mom is instant in her response to her baby when it has a need. That God is leaning towards you. Dr. Carissa Quinn is an Old Testament scholar. She's actually the director of scholarship at the Bible Project. This is how she describes Exodus 34.6. God is emotional, but he's not capricious or moody or dramatic. He's emotional in the best way like a parent who is deeply bonded to their child, and he is consistent in his emotion. When God's children cry out, he responds. He feels a deep compassion for his people when they are in pain. God is emotionally invested in and responsive to his people. Do you know that? Do you believe that? If you're a note taker, I want to ask you to write this down. God keeps turning to those who turn to him. God keeps turning to those who turn to him. What could ever keep us from turning to and trusting him? Now, one of our values as a church is this, move towards the messes. 
And there is something in the passage that we read from Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that might feel a little bit messy. And so this is what I want to do. I just want to acknowledge it, and I want to read through it and talk about it together. In Exodus 34, 7, it says, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That sounds great. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, God is compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's faithful in his love, and he is forgiven. But it might sound like this is a bit contradictory. It's, it's, I could totally understand Well, someone would say, Rick, this reads like God is saying, I forgive you, but I'm still going to make you pay. How do we reconcile that? How are we to understand that? I want to make two observations from this passage. Here's the first one I want you to write down. It says, there is an end to God's patience, but not to his grace. <clears throat> There's an end to God's patience, but not to his grace. Now, before anybody wants to throw rocks at me and call me a heretic, hang with me for a second. We're not saying that God has a limited supply of patience, and when it runs out, tough luck. That's not true. This is what we're saying, that God chooses to limit how long he will be patient with sin. He puts a limit on how patient he will be, but he puts no limits on how gracious he will be. How are we to understand that? Because God is good, he will eventually respond to wickedness. Because God is good, he will respond to sin. Let's look at this again maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So he wants to forgive, and he will forgive. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. How are we to understand that? Personally, let me just say this. I stand with biblical scholars who affirm that this is not contradictory. Yes, God is willing to forgive, and he does forgive. And this passage, this segment that talks about the guilt going on to the second and third generations, what that's saying is, is that it is passed on. The consequences of sin can be passed on. And really, I don't think that's all that provocative. Do you? Like, isn't it true that we can see that wealth can be passed on and built over generations? Is that provocative to say? Can't poverty be passed on and even perpetuated over generations? In the same way, consequences or difficulty or hardships from morally broken choices can be passed on and will be experienced by subsequent generations. We see it happen in families. We see it happen in entire countries. We see it happen with cultures. And what this is saying is that God will forgive you and God wants to forgive you should you trust in him. And yet the reality and the consequence for our sins, saying, God, we want to go with our own authority. We don't want your authority. Is The consequences are not only inescapable by us, they're inescapable by those who would come after us. Sin has to be paid for. And this is where we see the unlimited graciousness of God, but it doesn't have to be paid for by us. Sin has to be paid for, but it doesn't have to be paid for by us. There's another fact about Exodus 34 that I want to bring to your attention tonight. Biblical scholars have described this as God's wedding vow to his people. And the reason that Exodus 34 is described as God's wedding vow to his people, because in this chapter, God makes a covenant with the people of Israel in the immediate aftermath of their ugly sin. And this is what marriage is. Did you know that? Marriage is a covenant. And in our culture, 
in our day and age, we tend to think marriage less and less of a covenant, and we treat it more like a legal contract, which is unfortunate. And a legal contract, this is how it works, and you know this, is that if you break your end of the deal, I can back out, and I don't have to keep my end of the deal anymore. If I break my side of the contract, you can back out, and you don't have to hold your end anymore. We only have, in a contract, we only have to keep our promises to the extent that the other person keeps their promises. That's a contract, but a covenant is different. And the covenant and the mindset of God and the way that God enters into a covenant is even if the other side won't hold up their deal, I will hold it all up on my own. This is what I want you to understand about God tonight. God doesn't just hold up his end of the relationship. He holds up ours too. That's what happens in a covenant. And describing Exodus chapter 34, I want to introduce you to another Old Testament scholar. His name is Alex Kirk, and he describes it like this. God's freedom and his sovereignty are characterized by his ability to act lovingly to whomever he wishes, even towards the kind of people who cheat on their wedding night, people that cannot watch and pray for one hour, that seem programmed to fail. Though you walk all over him, he will never break the covenant on his end. He guards devotion, and that's what unfailing love means. This week, I was pleasantly surprised by the news uh, that uh, Brittany Griner was released from prison. Did you guys see that? That she is, she's back in the United States, free from Russia, and she wasn't just released, was she? There was an exchange that was made. Our government, this is Brittany Griner, if you don't know the story, she's a U.S. citizen, she's a professional basketball player, and I don't know all the details, but she got into a little trouble uh, with Russia, I think related to a minor drug charge, and she was sentenced to nine years in prison. And she wasn't simply released, our government decided to give this man an exchange for her. And that means our government chose to pay the price for her freedom. And I'm not unaware, I understand that this is, anytime something like this happens, it becomes political. Anytime something like this happens, there is a debate about whether or not that should or should not have been done. But let me just tell you, from my perspective, there's a high price paid for my sin. Too high of a price paid for my sin. And there was an exchange that was made for me. And there was an exchange that was made for you. And this is how profound it is. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, could you imagine an event so severe that mountains are wiped away? God said, if you can even imagine that, you need to know this, my unfailing love. My unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Says the Lord, who has compassion on you. He is the God who holds up not just his end of the relationship, but ours too, when we are unable. This is why we light the candle of love at Advent. There is a light that has come into our darkness, and that light has a name. In John 8, 12, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus sees us better than anyone else does. No one empathizes with us like Jesus does. No one elevates us like Jesus does. 
No one forgets our sins and our failures like Jesus does. No one steps into the messes with us like Jesus does. No one endures with us like Jesus does. No one holds fast with us even when it seems like everything falls apart like Jesus does. Are you hearing me? Nobody loves us like Jesus does. And it is my hope that we would remember that. That by faith that each and every one of us would receive that by trusting in him. And that together, as we trust in him, that we would reflect that love to others.